0: Welcome to Exploring Possibilities. I'm your host, Cheryl Sitz. Since 2012, Mario Rosales of TechLife Balance and I have been airing inspiring, insightful conversations with all kinds of change agents who are raising the vibration on our planet. It's the intention of our show to explore possibilities and shift perspectives in holistic spiritual ways. You'll hear how various industry experts discover and share their deepest passions to make a bigger difference in the world. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And do me a favor, please come back and rate the show so that new people can find us. We'll introduce our next guest in just a moment.
1: Have you ever gone to a social media seminar and you have the online experts telling you, get a blog, get a website, get on social media, all this other stuff. By the time you're done with that seminar, that online expert is very good at frying your brain. The funny part is, you come back home, you get in front of the computer, and you're lost. Hi, I am Mario with Tech Life Balance. I see this all the time. You spend so much money and still don't know what is going on with your online presence. And you know, you probably don't need all of that. Let me go ahead and translate geek to english for you and show you what you really need. Because you don't need it all. You probably only need a few components. You have a great message out there and I would like to hear it, and I definitely want to help you put it out there. I am Mario Rosales with techlifebalance.net. I produce this podcast because I love distributing messages. Let me help you distribute your message.
0: Hi, it's your host, Cheryl Sitz. And when I'm not doing this podcast, I enjoy offering live or remote coaching sessions to help my clients explore their possibilities. Maybe you have a physical pain and you've never really gotten to the emotional root cause. Wouldn't it be nice to be free of that? we can do that together. We can also explore what it is you really want or what's really holding you back and get rid of that too. There's lots we can do together. Contact me, CherylSitz.com. Now on with the show. You know, this show is now reaching thousands of listeners each week, and I just can't understand why you wouldn't want to reach those listeners and tell them about your products and services. If you work in this niche and you're passionate about it, which you are if you listen to this show, definitely reach out to us at journeyofpossibilities.com and find out how you can get your ad featured on our podcast. We'd love to tell the world about you. Well, today we are recording this on Inauguration Day, and you know I love synchronicities, and today's guest is perfect for this event. Radio and TV reports named Dr. David Gruder America's integrity expert in 2008. Over his 40-plus year career, he's founded or been a board member for numerous for-profits and non-profits, has been featured in Forbes 17 times, and has given hundreds of keynotes, training programs, and media interviews in eight countries on three continents. Why is Dr. T- David Gruder such a sought-after thought leader and trusted advisor for diverse leaders, entrepreneurs, and professionals? Well, Clues can be found in his personal and book awards for politics and society, social change, leadership, collaboration, conscious business, psychology, health and wellness, and self-help. Needless to say, you are in for a real treat. You can find him online at drgruder.com, and we are delighted to welcome him here today. Hi, Dr. Gruder.
2: Oh, hi, Cheryl. such a pleasure to be with you.
0: We are so glad to have you, and it's such a perfect day for this conversation. I want to be talking to somebody about integrity anytime there's an inauguration of a new leader.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It's a perfect time to talk about integrity.
0: It is, isn't it? Well, I'd like to start by kind of exploring you a little bit. May I ask what led you into all of this extensive work that you've done on integrity and in leadership, as as far as you personally?
2: Yes, of course. There Are a lot of different pieces to that puzzle but I'm going to touch on some of the highlights in a relatively brief way and feel free to ask for more detail if any of them stand out to you because my history is being transparent open book anyway about my own history the good the bad and the ugly (laughs) Um, starting off all the way back in childhood there were a couple of pieces that really feed into answering your question. The first is that my dad was an attorney who, even though he made his living in tax law, his first love was constitutional law. And so he really steeped me in growing up in constitutional law. And that has impacted my worldview and my understanding of politics uh, all all the way through my lifetime and has really in fact caused me to be transpartisan since I was a teenager. And I'll share a brief incident that happened when I was a teenager back in the 1960s when the war in Vietnam was raging and my high school was polarized into two groups. One group was called the hippies and they were against the war in Vietnam. And the other group in my high school, they called themselves the greasers and they were (laughs) for the war in Vietnam. And the hippies were Uh, wore black armbands to protest the war and the greasers wore white armbands to protest the protesters and I really got very fed up with that polarization and tried to figure out what to do to make a statement so I got to work in designing an armband that I didn't know how to sew so I recruited my mom into sewing it for me and the armband was two bands tied together one was black one was white and across both of them was written the word anti-polarization so my armband finally gets ready for me to wear on the first day and so i put it on and i proudly wear it into my high school wanting these two groups to start joining together in dialogue finding mutual ways to uh, to synergize their perspectives. And so a group of greasers and a group of hippies end up surrounding me, circling me. And in one voice, they start screaming at me, all with the same message, both sides, <laughs> accusing me of being a coward who refused to take a stand. And they didn't understand that what I was trying to convey was my stand, that my stand was we've got to find the wisdom in seemingly opposite perspectives in order to generate really sustainable, high quality solutions. And so it was a really early lesson in my getting my wish, which was to get them, get these two diverse groups on the same page. But I was so young that I, (laughs) the only way I knew how to do that I didn't know this until that moment, was to get them to join together to to criticize me. (laughs) Right.
0: You sacrificed yourself to bring them together,
2: right? Unknowingly (laughs) sacrificed myself. And my life since then has been about learning how to bring individuals and groups together without turning myself into the sacrificial lamb, which I believe (laughs) I've finally succeeded at doing. So that's that's one piece from my childhood and is it okay if I share a couple of other personal pieces oh please yes so the interesting counterpoint to that was shortly after that in 1968 I ended up at Woodstock <laughs> and actually my parents sent me <laughs> <laughs> now they didn't know what they were sending me right. to because nobody <laughs> knew what Woodstock was going to be beforehand But um, uh, Woodstock really impacted my worldview just as much as my father's perspective on constitutional law did, because here I was a 15 year old. Uh, naive. I came to Woodstock a drug-free virgin, left Woodstock a drug-free virgin, (laughs) believe it or not. Uh, (laughs) I thought I was there for the music, but what I was really there for that I didn't, of course, know ahead of time was to experience what it was like to be in the middle of a temporary city of a half a million people who knew the world's eyes were on us and were dedicated to showing the world that a half a million people could actually have each other's backs. And to be part of that really showed me that we could have far more positive impact than we thought we could. And that that was a very profound experience and then fast forwarding to September 11th, 2001, I was born and raised in New York, and I've lived in California since 1975, but my mom was still alive at that time. She was living back in the home that I grew up in in the second half of my childhood in New York, and I was back in New York to help my mom begin to prepare her house to be sold because she had decided the time had come for her to move out of that house, and I was there when 9-11 occurred. Wow. And- I was very impacted being in New York on 9-11, of course, as many others were, whether they were in New York or not, but particularly New Yorkers were very impacted by being in the vicinity of ground zero. And when the foreign policy statement came out about a reaction response to 9-11 about three weeks after 9-11, it was so much the opposite of what I knew that the New Yorkers perspective about 9-11 was that something snapped in me and I knew that I needed to make a statement about a an integrative, holistic response to the root causes of terrorism psychologically, which I refer to as fanaticism disorder. And so out of all of that experience, my declaration of global responsibility got birthed. And when I had finished writing it, I wrote it with an intention that I would somehow, in ways that I didn't know how to orchestrate, would end up being brought to Geneva, which is the working capital of the United Nations, to talk about this and to uh, to help elevate the consciousness of world leaders. And through a bunch of synchronicities of uh, handful of years later, I was brought to Geneva to train a group of ambassadors to the World Trade Organization in collaboration based negotiation strategies instead of the common ones, which are compromise or coercion based. So that's just some of the background. And there's more. But that's uh, some of the highlights of how I ended up being so integrity focused in my life's work.
0: Well, and I have to ask you what's going through your mind as you're doing these things, both at the very local level of what impact it has at a city and then all the way up to the U.N. Today is a very emotional day across much of the world as we bring a new president into office, a very controversial campaign trail for both both of the parties. And then now this inauguration, it seems like emotions are more heightened than I've probably seen them since the 60s around politics and what's going on what are you what are you feeling around all of that from your perspective
2: yeah i'm feeling an exquisite blend of joy and fear and the reason for each the joy part is that i've been i've been aching for a shift in our society where we finally stopped um, being controlled by the status quo and where there would be mold breakers that would emerge in positions of influence who wouldn't be beholden to business as usual. So my joy part is about seeing that that's exactly what's going on and it's upsetting everybody And my fear part, of course, is that with great power comes great responsibility to quote the uh, (laughs) um, (laughs) Spider-Man world. Yes. And- uh actually that was uh Spider-Man's grandmother, I believe, who said that to Spider-Man when he first became Spider-Man. <laughs> and uh and so here we have someone who's very mer- mercurial, who's very unpredictable, who has been inaugurated as president on this day that you and I are recording this interview. And it's really um an unknown in terms of how he is going to step into that role once he has really gone through the top-level security briefings that only the President of the United States receives.
0: Yes. Yes, we were kind of speaking about that before the interview. He gets the rest of the story and then gets to figure out what he's really facing in terms of his objectives.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, so it's a combination of joy that the pot's being stirred and fear about the the wild card unpredictability of what that's going to lead to, and of course, what I'm holding space for is the elevation of consciousness that I've been aching for since 9/11, yes. literally since 9/11, and kept hoping that it would that happened, that the shift would happen as a result of nine eleven, which in my opinion, it didn't. And then as the result of the 2008 meltdown, which in my opinion, it didn't. And so now this is my next hope that we will elevate our consciousness.
0: I am I am so aligned with you on that. And I it to me it seems like the first hurdle had to be to get us past apathy because most of America wasn't even voting. Most of America seemed to be sleepwalking through daily routines and so fixated on, you know, just the immediate needs and wants that that there wasn't much involvement in in the big picture. And I'm not seeing as much apathy anymore for better or worse. Seems like everybody's at least awake now or most of us are.
2: Yes, I think that much larger a percentage of our population is emerging from what in psychology we call learned helplessness. And learned helplessness means I have no impact, so why bother? And what learned helplessness leads to is either a collapse into victimization or an expansion in a negative way into narcissism into self-centeredness and i'm just going to take care of me and who cares what the impact of me doing what i want to do has on others and so now we've got a greater awareness and a greater involvement and at the same time the form that that's taking, Cheryl, is hyperpolarization, this kind of rightness addiction about how wrong people with different perspectives from mine must be, and not just how wrong they are, but how ill-intended they must be because they don't think like I do. Yes.
0: Yes. I'm seeing relatives unfriending and and putting up walls against other relatives, friends abandoning friends. It's like, The polarization is really extreme right now. And I guess that's why I'm so excited to have you on the show because you do have such a a higher perspective of this whole scene. Is this just a natural part of the evolution of what we have to go through in our awakening is to be that polarized or is that what do you feel about that?
2: Yes, I uh, double edged sword here. So yes, because of choices that we've made and refused to make as a society over the last 40 or 50, actually, frankly, the last 60 or 70 years, this is a necessary, in my opinion, evolutionary step. Did we need to take this hyperpolarization route theoretically? No, I think we didn't. Theoretically, right. <laughs> but because of the delusional version of the American dream that was installed in our society using propaganda techniques back in the 1950s, we have, I think, had no choice but to get to this extreme position in order to finally wake up and ultimately get beyond the hyperpolarization back into a state of synergy, a state of working together through our very diverse perspectives, just like the founders of this country found a way to do on the constitutional floor when they were creating the US Constitution. They found a way to get past their extreme vitriol with each other on the constitutional floor, uh, even sometimes fist broke out broke out. But at the end of the day, they would go out and have drinks together at night because they knew that even though they had very strong disagreements about how to create the country they wanted to create, they all knew they were on the same page around its overall guiding purpose and vision. And that, is something we have to reclaim as a country, is that we are all on the same page about our higher intentions, so that we can engage in vigorous debate about how we get to express and bring into uh, the form of of policy, procedure, um, choice-making, how that vision comes to pass.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting when you look at, you talk about that we are all on the same page at the higher perspective, I don't encounter a lot of that when I look at the different – it's almost down to the class system like it's always been. depends on what class you ask and how they're doing financially and how they feel about the American dream and where we're at in building that or whether they want a new American dream. Where do you see all this going with the American dream as it's been held for the last – 40 or 50 years and and what's coming for us.
2: Yes, I agree with you by the way that there is a class divide. I think that there's a constitutional divide on top of that because in my experience, the vast majority of people either have forgotten or never learned what America's mission statement is. In fact, most people that I talk to have talked to for years don't even know that this country has a mission statement. It's the preamble of the U.S. Constitution. And the divide that I see is one group being militant in its insistence around the primary importance of individual freedom and the other group being equally militant in its insistence around the primary importance of the common good and both groups forgetting that the mandate, that the mission statement of of our country is a psychologically audacious mission statement, which is about making decisions in government and as citizens that grow from a healthy relationship with the built-in tension between the equal importance of preserving individual freedom and promoting the common good. So I see that divide between the personal freedom advocates and the common good advocates, not just the class divide. So you've done
0: so much work in this. Where do you see bridging that? How do you see us coming back together around those two seemingly... Contradictory pieces.
2: Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, it's a it's a wonderful question, and I see people coming together when they finally understand the profound differences between the version of the American dream that was installed in our society in the 1950s, called the American dream, and what the original American dream was that is so beautifully captured in the declaration of independence and the constitution those two versions are at odds with each other and maybe the thing to do next right now is to contrast those two visions
0: absolutely you are you are spot on it is so true we are all caught up in our careers and our jobs and buying our house and getting our cars and getting our a very 50s dream is still kind of I think I'm, I'm encountering a lot more people that have become disillusioned with that and figured out that's not their dream. But overall, I do still think a lot of people are still worried about what's in it for me instead of what's in it for we. So um, how do you think we get their attention back on the Declaration of Independence and, and what the mission is?
2: Uh, may if I may, I'll do a, a brief description of the anatomy of the 1950s version of the American dream and contrast it with the original version. Please do. Okay. So at the end of World War II, Harry Truman was president, and he was aware that there were two very, very overriding priorities from his perspective, that that our country was faced with. The first was keeping the economy growing in peacetime, because the reason that the United States recovered from the Great Depression, that one of the big reasons, I should say more accurately, was through a wartime economy. And Truman knew that and he wanted to figure out a way to keep the economy growing in peacetime so our country didn't become dependent on war in order to grow economic the second concern that he had. Was that he was afraid, as many others were at that point in time, that what happened in Nazi Germany could happen anywhere, including in the United States. So he wanted to minimize the chances that that could happen. The reason he was concerned and others were concerned about that was because the Nazi propaganda machine was built on the published works of the father of modern public relations, who was an American patriot by the name of Edward Bernays. And so he knew that Bernays' tactics were far more powerful than they were already understood to be in the United States before the Nazi minister of propaganda, Herr Josef Goebbels, got his hands on Bernays' published works. So Truman organized a group of of um, politicians and business people and charged them with the task of coming up with a plan to handle both of those concerns simultaneously, keeping America's economy growing in peacetime and minimizing the chances that what happened in Nazi Germany could happen here. And what they came up with was what they called the American dream, which was installed in the United States using Edward Bernays' propaganda tactics in the 1950s, and what it's built on is the opposite or the a distortion of the original American dream. So let me do that contrast now. Okay. The original American dream has as its pinnacle, if you can imagine a triangle, and at the pinnacle, the top of the triangle is the pursuit of happiness. And at the corner of both corners of the base of that triangle, you have at one corner on the base personal freedom. And at the other corner in the base, you have Social responsibility and the combination of freedom and the common good was going to synergize with each other to enable the pursuit of happiness to occur. Well, in the 1950s, the pursuit of happiness at the top of the triangle got redefined as excessive consumerism. Amen. Excessive (laughs) consumerism. Nothing wrong with things and stuff and lifestyle and adventures, nothing wrong with that. But when we equate those things with happiness, the game is over. We're stuck. We're trapped. So the pursuit of happiness got redefined as excessive consumerism. Freedom got redefined as conformity. Freedom got redefined as here's the version of what we're pursuing. We're pursuing the 1.8 kids. I'm being facetious. The two (laughs) cars, uh, the two car garage with the private house, with the white picket fence and the vacations and all of the latest consumer toys and uh, and, uh, electronics and gadgets at the at the house. Yes. And. What responsibility got redefined as was overwork because the people in the workforce had to work longer and longer hours to climb a corporate ladder in a job they weren't necessarily thrilled with for a company whose values they weren't necessarily thrilled with in order to love, quote unquote, their family by providing their family with enough money to Get all of those things that were defined as the new version of happiness. And this perversion of the american dream is directly responsible for every single one of the social deterioration dimensions that most of us know about that have occurred in our society in business in government in overtaxation in every aspect of society since the 1950s
0: that is so true and you know the other thing that seems to have gotten redefined or reemphasized the pursuit of happiness became the pursuit of happiness all those things that we redefined in the rest of the triangle led us chasing 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 the dream that was ever elusive because we couldn't get enough it exactly. it was maddening it it is maddening still for a lot of people
2: it's a never ending loop it's a bottomless pit because uh, there's a this is why by the way that by the 1960s consumer debt had skyrocketed already by then to unheard of levels prior to then. And of course, it's gone way out of control since then, because there was a built in shortfall between what people were bringing home in their paychecks and the amount of money that was necessary in order to fulfill the uh, the promise of the American nightmare, the the (laughs) 1950s version of the American dream. And that's why people are trying to step off that merry-go-round now uh, because they're seeing that that is a, a hopelessly dysfunctional happiness formula. But the problem is they've forgotten or they never learned what the original happiness formula's anatomy and ingredients were so they don't know what to replace the faulty version with.
0: I love that. Hopelessly dysfunctional. Boy, that really nails it, as you described it well. So is there a graceful way that we can move from this American nightmare, as you just coined it, into a more balanced American dream? I mean, we really are in, in a place of defining a new American dream, aren't we?
2: We are. We're in in the process of what I hope will result in a 21st century expression and embodiment of the original American dream. And as a psychologist, to answer your question, one of the key ingredients in making the shift is to remove the notion that there's an enemy here. What we are seeing is unintended consequences that have come from largely noble intentions So there's no enemy here. Truman's desire to create an economy that grows in peacetime and to minimize the chances that what happened in Nazi Germany could happen here. Those are noble intentions that happened to give rise to a faulty formula. And as most of us know, when an innovator, a thought leader, hatches something new, that's never been seen before by definition they can't have all of the wisdom of foresight to forecast what the unintended consequences of that vision might be bernays had no idea that when he published his writings about how to do social engineering which is what he called it to mold public opinion that joseph goebbels would get his hands on his published writings and fashion the nazi propaganda campaign around around that einstein when he stumbled into the law of relativity e approximates mc squared He didn't say, oh, goody, goody, now we can create nuclear bombs, (laughs) unintended consequences of noble intentions. If we remove the enemy, the delusion that there's an enemy here, we can then sit back and say, ah, unintended consequences, loving mistakes here, as I call them, loving intention, mistaken expression. Now let's just simply stop blaming an enemy and start creating the way out.
0: It's such an interesting day to be speaking these words because there's protest walks going on across the country. There's a lot of right versus wrong, me versus you, foe, enemy, foe, you know, friend or foe. There is still an enemy language going on here, and it's very prominent today. How do we get to a place where we can rise above this and actually see a bigger picture for ourselves. Is this where we could benefit from some of your work? Tell me which which books you would send someone to that's really enra- outraged about the election today or can't really find the good in what's going on.
2: Sure, happy to do that. And yes, I agree. I'm, I'm back in high school again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm back in the high school where, where this hyper-polarization was going yes. on and uh, you know we just didn't learn our lesson from the 1960s. So, <laughs> Yes, there are a couple of resources that I have that I think could really be helpful to people. One resource is a free resource, which is the Declaration of Global Responsibility that I wrote, although that's a little bit more limited in scope because that's a, uh, an integrated approach to dealing with the roots of terrorism and really the roots of polarization at a at a broader level another resource that's a low cost resource is my uh the book of mine that won 6 of my 8 book awards which is the new iq how integrity intelligence serves you your relationships and our world uh the th- the third is something that i'm i'm bringing online again very very soon which is a, a, going to be a free resource as well. It's my reconciliation roadmap. It's a step-by-step roadmap for, uh, for rising above and making the most of our differences on behalf of creating sustainable solutions rather than on behalf of increasing our polarization. And when my reconciliation roadmap is available again, it'll be featured on the homepage of my main website drgruder.com, although uh, it, it will also be available directly through the URL reconciliationroadmap.com. And then the final piece is that people are struggling, I believe, to develop right relationship with power. A lot of people are stuck in the power means tyranny power means coercion. And if I'm going to step into power, I have to sacrifice my integrity and social responsibility. And that's a lie. And then there are other people who are so angry at the power Addicts, the power drunk, the power tyrants, that they've gone into adolescent rebellion and whatever the power drunks are doing, they stand in direct opposition to that. And that's equally dysfunctional. <laughs> and then the third dysfunctional reaction to power is to become the ostrich, to stick one's head in the ground and say, I, I've got no power. There's nothing I can do. So I have a course that I just launched which is on ethical personal power effectiveness. And so that resource is another one of mine that I think is going to be very important in helping the shifts happen that need to happen on the individual level and on the leadership level.
0: This is just such a valuable conversation to be having right now. I'm just, I really want to say thank you for taking the time to have this conversation with us today, because there are a lot of people who are going through all of those different reactions to power, especially today. There's the quote unquote winners and the quote unquote losers, and there's really nobody in between. I'm not meeting too many people that are apathetic about this one. They're
2: either really happy or they're really angry. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, and you know the the term in between Cheryl, I think is a really important term that you've brought up because a lot of people think of the in between as this 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 very bland, boring gray area between one extreme and another, and that is because most people have been trained in a uh in a very inferior problem-solving strategy called compromise. Yes. And compromise is not what I'm advocating. Compromise is a a backup plan when the superior problem-solving method proves impossible because one or more parties are unteachable or unwilling to collaborate. But the best attainable outcome with a compromise strategy is all parties walk away from the negotiating table feeling equally ripped off. <laughs> and I'm not advocating that. That yes. is not the in between that solves anything. That's so true
0: what I found from from just working at the mediation table for a while with some of these volatile family situations and it's kind of the same because we are all a family in this nation and we're a global family and when emotions ramp up reason seems to go out the window. There's very little listening going on and a whole lot of yelling and screaming. And so if nobody's listening, we can't get anywhere anyway. What is like the first step to even get us to stop and listen and actually breathe and take a moment and and be present in this conversation?
2: Great question. I go into a lot of detail about the mechanics of how to do that in my ethical personal power effectiveness course, and also in my uh, in my full spectrum anger literacy and effectiveness course. And what it's about is really getting a skill set developed that number one helps us distinguish between when we are in our our thinking Mind, our intuitive connection, our higher connection, our higher human self, versus when we are in the middle of what I now refer to as a reptile brain takeover. And when people are <laughs> screaming at each other, their reptile brain has taken over. Uh, and what that state is that most people don't really understand is that when we are so stressed inside ourselves that we are generating stress chemicals, norepinephrine, adrenaline, cortisol, those chemicals go straight to our brains and their function in our brain is to turn off our cortex, the thinking part of our brain, and to turn on our limbic system, our amygdala, our reptile brain. And so we deteriorate into being animal brain reactors. (laughs) Yes. And when we are flooded that way, when our brains have been taken over by those stress chemicals, we cannot, by definition, think our way out of a paper bag because the part of our brain that's capable of thinking has been shut off temporarily by those chemicals. Yes. So any attempts to have rational discussions when our brains are flooded with those stress chemicals can never succeed until those stress chemicals have been reabsorbed out of the brain back into the midsection of our body where they came from in the first place.
0: (laughs) And possibly one of the hardest, most grown up things we have to learn how to do is in the moment that we most want to scream or punch somebody that we stop and take a breath. And calm down, and be able to actually come back to that reasoning place where we can have a conversation. But and and it seems like when, then we get the mob mob effect, you know, when we get more people in these protests and things, and and that takes over, and emotions even escalate further. So, I am for one, am setting the intention that our we'll take a big collective deep breath after today, and start to actually be able to think collectively. Where do you see that yes. starting to happen?
2: where I see it starting to happen is in the number of different communities of people that are attempting to do this very thing there. Uh, I I'm not re- I'm not connected with any of them directly yet. So I'm not remembering the names off the top of my head, but there are groups that are really dedicated to finding the third way, the, the alternative to either or. And uh, I think that regardless of whether someone finds those groups or doesn't, I think the challenge in front of every one of us is to elevate ourselves into a level of psychological competency that's rarely talked about, which is tensions competence, the ability to hold in a good way inside ourselves, the tension Of what seems to be an either or so that we can find the grains of truth or the nuggets of truth or the or the boulders of truth in each of the either or perspectives so that we can build a both and wisdom. And when people don't have that priority nor that maturity to hold tensions with grace nothing gets to shift. That's one of the keys to effective personal power is that tensions competency.
0: Thank you for outlining that. I like that. I'm going to have to go back and and jot that down. That was very clear. I liked that explanation a lot. Well, I had a whole list of things I wanted to talk to you about today and the time has just flown, but I feel like everything we've covered has been exactly what needed to be said right now. So thank you for all of that. And I like to leave each of my shows asking the question if you have a parting thought that you would like to share with our listeners.
2: Sure. When I was a child, we the family received a, uh, a New Year's card from, it was a UNICEF New Year's card. And what it said went straight to my soul, even though I was about six years old at the time. And I'll share with you that message because I've never forgotten it. The greater peace will only come after the smaller piece we make with each other.
0: I love that. That's beautiful. So true. Isn't it interesting how the best truths that we learn can be in such short little phrases?
2: (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs)
0: Dr. Grutter, thank you for all that you do. You are a bright light in our world right now, and you bring such an important message for us to hear and hold on to and align with as we all work together to create the shift of our dreams on this planet. Thank you, thank you.
2: My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Cheryl. I know you didn't get to other questions. So if you do want to get to those, I'd be glad to come back on your show in the future.
0: Oh, thank you so much. And take care and, and keep shining bright.
2: <laughs> thank you. And you too.
0: Would you like to be a guest on Exploring Possibilities? Drop me a note at info at journey dot com. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you next time on Exploring Possibilities.